I would like to describe a field in which little has been done, but in which an enormous amount can be done. This field is not quite the same as the others in that it will tell us little of fundamental physics, but it will tell us much about the strange phenomena that occur just below our perception. In contrast to the natural philosophers of the past, the scientists of this field delve into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. Their quest is to understand and create the imperceptible. After all, there is plenty of room at the bottom. Hello and welcome to the Materialism Podcast, an exploration of the past, present, and future of material science and engineering. I'm Andrew Falkowski. I'm an undergraduate student of material science and engineering here at the University of Utah, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Taylor Sparks. Taylor, it's been about a month since we last caught up. What on earth have you been up to? Dude, it's been a fantastic summer. As an academic, that's the best time of the year. You're not teaching classes, you're doing more research. And we had a cool experience. One of my best friends from graduate school, he actually got married to this really neat South African gal. And the wedding took place at this chateau in like Saxony, Germany, just middle of nowhere. The whole thing was just bizarre and a really cool you know, trip. So that's been my summer so far. How about yourself? What have you been up to? Yeah, so um, last time, last episode, I gave a little bit, I talked a little bit about the fact that I'm in College Station for a, a research exchange at Texas A&M University. And at that point, I really didn't appreciate the, uh, the sheer magnitude of the campus down here. It, the student population is about 65,000, and the campus is just like, it, it's, it's enormous in terms of the, the size. And so since then, I've really gotten to go and explore the campus, explore College Station, really get into my research. Yeah, Utah's not a small school, but that's over double our size. That's a big, big place in a small town. Yeah, yeah, it, it pretty much is the... It almost is the town. I mean, there's another town outside it named Bryan, but it just the population here is enormous. And even trying to walk from one part of Texas A&M to another is can take like a half an hour. Wow. So how's the machine learning coming? Are you picking up the his Bayesian approach? I'm not using his. Um, I'm using a newer model called CISO, and we're attempting to predict the stability of different oxides. So... I've gotten to learn a ton here, which it's actually been really fun. You kind of have that that balance of still having time to pursue, um, you enjoy the summer, but also having a lot of time to learn on my own and learn a bunch of new things. And so it's been a really good experience so far. Really, really cool. That's fantastic. So what's on the docket for today? We're, we're talking about Gore-Tex. That's right. We're going back and talking about commercialization, how we take a material from the laboratory and then bring it to the market. Today, yeah, today we're going to be essentially talking about how you can structure a company like a material, and we're focusing around Gore-Tex. And it starts off with Wilbert Lee Gore, or as he's more commonly known, Bill Gore. He's born in 1912 in Meridian, Idaho, which is the same place that I grew up. After that, he goes to the University of Utah, and he gets a Bachelor's of Science in Chemical Engineering, and then continues with a Master's of Science in Physical Engineering. After that, he goes to a number of different companies with these degrees, uh, American Smelting and Refining Company, Remington Arms, and the DuPont Company. So at DuPont, uh, Bill Gore is working in fluoropolymer research and having this innate inventive and entrepreneurial spirit, he starts investigating and doing experiments on it in his own home. Which I think is just so fantastic. I love the inventor that doesn't wait for some big, beautiful lab to be handed to him, that's willing to get started you know, wherever they can. Um, Anyway, so he's at DuPont, 
He's working on fluoropolymers, and DuPont has actually, they're, they're the ones who invented fluoropolymers. It goes back about 20 years prior, back in 1938. There was this guy, Roy J. Plunkett. He was a chemist there at DuPont, um, and he was trying, to, he, wasn't, he had no idea who was going to make it. It was one of these interesting stories that's actually fairly common in material science where they discover a new material totally by accident. What he was trying to work on was uh, refrigerant fluid, right? In a refrigerator, you have to have your working fluid. That's what, you know, the work happens on that allows the system to be cooled. And back then, their working fluids were really toxic, nasty stuff. And so DuPont wanted to come up with some new materials. And he decided the, at the time to work on this molecule tetrafluoroethylene. So that molecule, if you were to look at it, it kind of looks like a TIE fighter from, from Star Wars, right? It's got two carbons. They're double bonded to each other. So you've got that strong double bond between them. And then forming like sort of like the X, you've got fluorines going off on the sides, right? So you've got four fluorines and two carbons and that double bond between the carbons. Um, and so this is a gas at room temperature. And so it was in a canister. He's got this big sort of scuba tank sized canister of this, te of this tetrafluoroethylene gas. Um, and then what's fascinating is he added some chlorine to it. And I don't know why he did that, but he chlorinated it um, for whatever reason. And then he puts it under dry ice. And then he came back to it later to use it. And what he'd found is that when he turned the valve, no gas came out, like there was no flow at all. But he weighed it, and it weighed enough that it should still have stuff inside of it. And so him and some other scientists, there's this really cool picture of them sawing it open that we'll probably post on our Instagram feed. They actually sawed this thing open and found that inside, the entire inside was coated with white. So what had happened, uh, just to explain some of the backstory about polymers, uh, if you've learned about polymerization, there's lots of ways that you can go from monomers to polymers. A monomer just means, you know, a small unit. And then polymer, that comes from the Greek many parts. So monomer is a single part turning into many parts. That's the process of polymerization. One way that you can do that is by introducing a radical, something that has, say, like a free electron. And that free electron really wants to bond with something. And what it does is it takes that sort of X-wing, you know, molecule and it attacks the double bond, and it breaks that double bond. So now the double bond, um, it, since it becomes a single bond, the chlorine from the chlorine that he added to this, that's going to bond on one side of the molecule. And then now there's this extra free electron on this tetrafluoroethylene molecule, and that's going to attack another double bond. And that's going to bond with it, and that's going to attack another double bond. And next thing you know, this becomes like a long chain instead of small individual molecules. It becomes a long chain where you have a carbon-carbon backbone with single bonds, and then every carbon is also bonded to two fluorines. So you have carbon and fluorine, which is an incredibly strong chemical bond. What sort of properties does that lead to, Andrew? Yeah, so this gives us quite a few properties. So you might be familiar with something called London dispersion forces. Essentially, these are very weak bonds that occur between materials that result from the random alignment of charges and electrons within them. And because of the high electronegativity of fluorine, this results in PTFE having probably the lowest, one of the lowest coefficients of friction in any solid material. And that made it extremely useful in you know, creating non-stick coatings in pans, machinery lubricant. Um, but the other thing is that because of the strength of the fluorine and carbon bond that you talked about, it also means that this is very unreactive. So it's really useful inside pipes where you might have highly reactive chemicals and it's also used inside of things like catheters because bacteria isn't able to bond to it. So it's always been kind of interesting to me why Teflon, right? Because this polytetrafluoroethylene, they start calling it Teflon. That becomes its sort of trade name. 
but why is it not hydrophilic, right? Because normally you think hydrophilic, water is a polar molecule, and when there's polar surfaces and things like that, they tend to be hydrophilic. Water interacts with them positively, and it has a low wetting angle. And again, wetting angle is if you were to put a droplet of fluid on some sort of surface and look at it from the side, if it wets the surface, then that droplet's going to be really flat and smeared on the surface. But if it's hydrophobic, then it's going to have a really like, it'll just look like a little bead of water sitting on the surface. Maybe you've seen that on plant leaves or things like that before. And to me, it's always a little bit surprising that you take an extremely electronegative molecule like fluorine, which really wants electrons, and bond it to something like a carbon, which doesn't want it as much. So that, in my mind, at first I'd think, oh, that's a polar arrangement, so that why should this be hydrophobic? But the reason it's hydrophobic is because overall the molecule is totally symmetric. You've got these fluorines on the top side and then them on the bottom side. Um, and so there's really no way that these, uh, it, it's not as polar as you might think. The, the overall dipole cancels out in this molecule. And we know that because if you look at an alternative uh, polymer, polyvinylidene fluoride, this looks just like Teflon. It's got that same carbon-carbon backbone. But on the top, right, then you've got your fluorines. But on the bottom, it's got, uh, what does it have in that? Is it chlorine or hydrogen? Um, it's hydrogen. So they alternate between hydrogen and fluorine. So in that molecule, because you don't have fluorine on the above and below the, bottom, the main chain, you do have a permanent dipole. And if you look at the contact angle of polyvinylidene fluoride versus Teflon, it has a lower wetting angle. Teflon is much higher than that one. So I thought that was an interesting way to explain why this, at first glance, you would expect it maybe to be hydrophilic, but it's actually hydrophobic because there's no net dipole. Mm-hmm. And so Bill Gore recognizes the important properties of this material and thinks that he can do something with it. And so if you think about computers back then, they had to use a lot of wires. We don't see that as much today in order to connect all of the various components of the computer. And one thing that was very common were these things called ribbon cables, which had several uh, wires aligned and then plastic acting as an insulator between them. And he thought that he could use this Teflon to sort of coat them and create that insulating layer. But he was having a lot of trouble with it. He was trying to use the powdered form of PTFE to try and roll that into. And this was being done in his basement. You know, this was him experimenting on the side after work. And so it was actually his son, Bob Gore, who at the time was, um, uh, he was, uh, I think, a sophomore in, uh, in college studying chemical engineering, he suggests using the Teflon sheets that have already been created and then rolling those together to try and bond them. And so initially, Bill Gore doesn't think this is possible, but overnight he just continues experimenting and he recalls in the morning going and shaking his son to wake and like telling him that his idea actually worked. And this is where the foundation for um, a company that he decides to start with his wife, Genevieve, in 1957 called uh, W.L. Gore and Associates. So for the first two years of this company's existence, they're pretty much operating out of the basement of their home. And Gore starts to bring over some people that he worked with from DuPont and hires them onto this company. And they're essentially just working on a makeshift laboratory in his basement. And initially they didn't have a lot of money. And so when they needed to get equipment, rather than purchasing it, they would try to create the equipment in-house on their own. And um, some of the people who were working for him at the time recalled that when they needed a part for a machine or 
piece of equipment or a tool that they were trying to make, usually they would actually just go upstairs to the kitchen and try and find some sort of kitchen gadget or utensil that they could use or modify. I love it. Because, I mean, one of the main parts that we're doing the, the podcast this month on Gore-Tex is because obviously it's an amazing material, but it's such an interesting company as we're going to learn more and more through this episode. And right from the beginning, right? Right from the beginning, they're doing things in a very unconventional way. Mm-hmm. And they continue to operate out of that basement for about two years until they get their first major order of this, um, this what they call this multi-tet wire, which are, is the Teflon insulated like wire arrays. In 1960, from the Denver Water Company, they want to essentially install a new water system underground, and they want to make sure that they can use computers to try and control and regulate it. And because of the properties of PTFE, not being able to corrode and being a good insulator and water resistant, they want to use that, this multi-tech cable that WL Gore Associates is known for to do it. And so they request about seven and a half miles of this cable. And at the time, using, you know, kitchen-made uh, equipment, they're not able to keep up with this kind of you know, manufacturing capacity. So this is when they expand and they get their first you know, actual facility. And it's around this time that they actually hire their son. So Bob Gore had just finished his PhD in chemical engineering. He went to the University of Minnesota. Um, and if, fast forward a couple of years, it's now 1969. And Bob Gore, he's trying to find out what else this material can be good for, right? Teflon is clearly being used for their multi-tick cable, but he figured there's actually more things that could be done. Something that he was particularly looking at was ways to stretch and extrude Teflon, right? He wanted to make pipe thread tape. Um, and during this process, he realized that the polymer itself could be what he was calling expanded, right? So after a series of unsuccessful attempts, when he was trying to stretch these rods by about 10%, which again, is quite a bit, um, all of a sudden he realized that under the right conditions, you can stretch uh, Teflon in ways that are totally counterintuitive. If you heat it up, and you apply the stress sort of very suddenly, so a rapid strain rate, all of a sudden, instead of that 10% strain rate, which he was after, or the 10% strain, he could achieve 800% strain, right? So if you're gonna strain, if you're gonna increase like the dimensions of this top polymer that much, something has to give, right? And what's happening is that it is increasing, but it's forming an extremely microporous structure. So there's a bunch of tiny little air pockets otherwise, in the otherwise dense, uh, a floor polymer structure. So they've got this cool new material. It's massively expanded. It's mostly air inside of it. And you start to ask, well, what can we do this for, right? They were initially calling this material fibrillated Teflon, PTFE. And a year later, they named it Gore-Tex, which you probably own. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably own something that is Gore-Tex. It's become one of these really amazing materials. If you've seen it advertised, then you know that the idea behind Gore-Tex is that it's breathable, but waterproof. So let's say you're wearing this Gore-Tex material and you're running, so you're sweating and you would otherwise be stinky and smelly. What this allows you to do is all that sweat, it can turn into water vapor and it can pass through the cloth. But if it's raining outside or if you walk through a river or something, the water can't go through. So Andrew, how on earth is it possible for water to go through, but not go through? What's happening here? I mean, the water molecules in the vapor form are are small enough that they can pass through these pores within the material. But when water is in the liquid form, it's bonded together. There are all sorts of forces interacting with it, such as London dispersion forces that would prevent it from moving through these pores. 
Yeah, if we go back to the, the topic earlier when we were talking about hydrophobic versus hydrophilic, if you've got an extremely hydrophobic surface and you put a water droplet on it, that droplet beads up and it literally has like some size. Um, so as long as your pores are much, much smaller than that bead of water droplet, then the water droplet can't go through. If you had a really hydrophilic surface, this wouldn't work. And so it was important that you use Teflon. You couldn't just take any old plastic material pump it full of, you know, tiny little channels and hope that it's going to be waterproof. Um, it was the high, you know, hydrophobicity of this Teflon that really made it work in this way. And now this is just an incredibly important material. And as interesting as this material is, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll talk about really the company, which is every bit as interesting or even more. And now we're going to be talking about the company that Gore built that has allowed them to and, and it allowed its employees to continuously innovate and develop new materials. So when Gore was working at DuPont as a chemist, he was really interested in these fluoropolymers and PTFE Teflon. He wanted to explore these, but the higher ups within the company weren't really interested in this material. DuPont had its own line of products at the time and it had its own direction that it wanted to go. And so they were putting funding and resources into that as opposed to what they perceived as a side project. And this is what inspired Gore initially to start experimenting in his basement. And so when he started his own company, he wanted to develop a company structure that would remain focused, but still allow employees to investigate and ex the things that they wanted to look into and try new things that may or may not have been perceived as valuable by you know, potential higher-ups within the company. And so he comes up with the idea of a lattice structure for a company. And so when he's developing this, he brings a lot of inspiration still from DuPont. He, one of the things that they used at DuPont was these, uh, this idea of task force teams. And so essentially what they would do is they would operate on sort of an ad hoc basis and they would essentially attack problem situations. They were tend to be multidisciplinary, so they'd bring in people from different parts of the company into these teams, and then they would basically operate outside of the company's typical structure to try and solve these different problems. And so this is, this is one of the other things that inspired him for this Lattice organization, which he proposes in 1967. The way to sort of visualize this is a flat, lattice-like organizational structure where everyone shares the same title of associate. That's why the company's called WL Gore and Associates. And there's there aren't any chains of command. There aren't predetermined channels of communication. Instead of having managers, you know, their managers and so on, and having this hierarchical structure, they have the idea of leaders, which replace this traditional idea of bosses. And so how these leaders are formed is that the associates within the company choose via a natural process to follow leaders rather than having bosses assigned to them. What I think is really cool about this is that this is back right in like 1967. And yet if you compare this to some of um, the leading thoughts on how to manage businesses for a startup, take like the lean startup approach or some of these others that have been published, a lot of these same ideas are here now. He was really ahead of his time working in small groups, small interdisciplinary groups, 
uh, finding ways to allow for innovation by giving people freedom in the company to work. I just think this is really a pretty cool, innovative approach, and he was way ahead of his time. Mm -hmm. And so going on the idea of these natural leaders forming, essentially what would happen is people had to naturally rise up within projects that they were interested in and you know, start to try and act as a leader and try to pull people together and push resources in a certain way. And so what happened was really anybody in the company can call a board meeting or a group meeting at any time, but it's really the people who have that pull um, via socially and via their, their experience and their, their ability to like get things done that will rise up as these natural leaders within the company. And so you get people who are leading projects and offering directors within the company that have sort of earned the respect of their employees and are able to sort of command that influence from a natural means rather than something that's pre-established. That's pretty cool. Now, something I'd heard about this from a climbing partner, actually, like a few months ago before we even started working on this, he told me that gore companies, when they get to a certain size, that they'll split up, that they, they by design, fragment to small groups. So is that true? And, and what's the rationale behind that? Right. Gore actually has a really interesting idea behind that. So he believes that accomplishment tends to peak when you have about 150 people in the same group. After that point, it becomes necessary to impose all these rules, regulations, procedures that have to dictate how cooperation needs to be done and how it needs to be organized if they want it to be efficient. And he actually kind of gets this from the idea of you know, 150 to 200 people is roughly the size, like a tribal size and sort of the upper limit of a size where group of people can live um, together. And so what he does and how he implements this in his company is whenever a, a team within his company surpasses this 150 to 250 people mark, he just completely separates them and will put them in a separate building. And that's that's its own group within Gorn Associates. I think that's so cool because think about it. Think about times when you've worked around people that you didn't know. I mean, it's kind of awkward. You're, you tend to be a little more shy. You don't know them. You don't know what resources they have to share that you could lean on. And then think about working in these small group settings. And I love that they've come up with an institutional way to always keep that sort of dynamic, you know, everyone around you and you work closely on small teams way. Right. And so Bill Gore's t articulated, he has a lot of essays that are definitely worth reading if you're really interested in this. Um, four sort of cultural principles that he wanted to sort of outline for his company to follow. The first was the idea of freedom, and that was that associates have this freedom to encourage, help, and allow their other associates to grow in knowledge, skill, and scope of responsibility. So this is where the idea of, free, of associates being able to choose what projects they want to work on, choose who to follow, and choose what responsibility they want to take on within the company. The second thing that he encourages is fairness, and that's that you know, you're in this small team, everybody's working towards potentially different goals around there on different projects, but they're all communally working towards the goal of creating a better product, new inventions and engineering new materials. The third one is the idea of commitments. And so for the when a new company joins Gore Associates, they have a couple of months to explore different teams, they sort of rotate around the different teams that are within the group that they're assigned and they get to see what projects they're working on, meet people within them, but eventually they have to commit to one project or another. And so they really value the ideas. Once you commit to a project, like you're committed to that project, you need to be passionate about that project and you have responsibilities to that project that you can't let down. 
Finally, he believes in something he calls the water line. If you think of think of a fire, like a building on fire, and sort of back in the old days before we had this um, advanced equipment for fighting fires, they would have to basically form a line of people who would pass buckets back and forth. The idea of the water line is, well, these associates have the freedom to move and try different things. They have to remember that they're still working towards a goal. And so if they engage in projects or activities or research that disrupts the, the water line of the company, you know, that, that will that will prevent, that'll cause the fire to spread and it won't, it won't cause, it won't fix the problem. And so he really encourages people to cooperate with their associates and exercise their freedom while also respecting the goals of the company. So I read that one way that he allows you to sort of have that freedom, but still make sure that, like you said, the waterline stays intact and you're still fulfilling your main goals is he literally programs in part of their time as being free time. I think they call it dabble time, right? So all associates at these Gore companies have about 10% of their work, uh, which is free to dabble. Now, that doesn't mean that you're hanging out and playing ping pong. It means that you're working on projects, but they're of your own choosing, right? So if you want to try some new material or product or whatever, this is the time that you have where you don't need to worry about, you know, you, someone peeking over your shoulder and worry about you're not working. You're dabbling, but it's towards some interesting free purpose of your own. Mm-hmm. And this makes a lot of sense. In, I, I think almost pretty much most of the episodes and the materials we've covered, there's always been some element that has been discovered by accident or someone doing something that was unconventional. And so if you want to try to speed up the amount of innovation within your company, you'd want to foster a culture or activities within that company that would tend to allow people to expand and try kind of crazy things that may produce more of these accidental materials. Now, I imagine you could take it too far, right? If you're giving like so much autonomy to people and there's sometimes a totally a a bit of an unclear chain of command, it could run into problems. So I imagine Gore must come up with some sort of boundaries. What are other things that he has to make sure this doesn't spin out of control? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so for all these unusual ideas, Gore's not a romantic by any means. He doesn't propose, like you said, replacing every aspect of the hierarchy with these rat, these lattices and using this non-hierarchical lattice structure because he recognizes that stability and long-term constancy requires requires a firm hand at the helm. Um, decisions still have to be made and there has to be some upper limit to which the lattice is effective. And so, you know, like one instance is it's unrealistic for people to set their own salaries. So there still has to be some sort of hierarchical structure but in terms of people producing their own work and allowing to lead their projects, that's where he finds the lattice to be most successful. And one sort of really interesting note that I came across as I was um, doing research is for a while, Bob Gore, um, Bill Gore's son, was the CEO of the company. But when he stepped down and they needed to find a new one, rather than making this selection process very public, what they did is they went around to every single branch, to all their employees, and they asked them to fill out a survey and say, who within the company do you see um, as, you know, who, who would you follow? Like, who is the number one person you would follow if they started a new project? And so they essentially just picked whoever um, got the most votes and whoever did it. And so they sort of crowdsourced oh, who so their cool. next CEO would be based on that idea of natural leadership. Yeah, that's fantastic. And clearly it's become a, an incredible company, right? It's, it's lasted the test of time. They continue to make great products. Um, Bill Gore's actually passed away, right? He's not around anymore. No, that's right. He, he died of a heart attack at the age of 74, 1986, and he was backpacking in Wyoming's Wind River Range. Uh, I included a picture. It looks, it looks absolutely beautiful. And for him growing up in the Northwest where that outdoorsy culture, uh, 
really is very prominent. It it seems it seems like a fitting place. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, it's an amazing material. Teflon itself um, is amazing, and what they've done to it to modify its structure in a way that it can both breathe and let water vapor out while stopping you know liquid water from coming in has just countless applications. Um, but I think it's just equally interesting what they've done as a company to be innovative, to foster innovation and to create just a really cool culture. Well, thank you again for tuning into this episode of the materialism podcast. We hope you found what we covered today interested as always. We will include the sources for all of the articles we pulled from to bring you this episode in our show notes. So you can look at them further. Um, if you have any questions or feedback about the show, you can send us an email at materialism.podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. And make sure, if you really like the show um, and you want to help us reach even more people, consider leaving a review. It really helps us improve, tell us what we're doing well, what we're doing not so well, and helps us expose, uh, expose the show to new people. Finally, you can check out our Instagram page at materialism.podcast. We put interesting figures for the episodes as well as we announce new episodes there. Um, and you can connect with us and tell us what new materials you'd like to hear about next. Finally, we'd like to give a shout out to Alphabot for allowing us to use his music within the podcast. You can check him out on Spotify. And as always, a big thanks to Colabite who created the intro and outro for the podcast. He makes a ton of really cool synthwave music, which you can check out at colabite.bandcamp.com. The inventors of fire, electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, silk, cotton, the makers of tools, the captors of lightning, the architect, the engineer, the musician, are all beneficiaries of the materials of this world and are bound only by their imaginations in manipulating those materials. <laughs>